Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. So, if you've got your Bibles, uh, Acts chapter 2, we're, we're getting close. We're getting close to, to being done with Acts chapter 2. <laughs> uh, next week, uh, I'm excited. My, my good friend, uh, George Jacobus, former uh, college minister, pastor at Central Baptist, uh, now works for the Flippin' Group, but continues to preach and teach the Word uh, often. He will, be, uh, he will be preaching next Sunday, and then the following Sunday, uh, the 22nd, we'll be, we'll be back to two services at that point. Uh, we'll also be back in Acts chapter 2 as we, as we cover the last 10 verses, talk a lot about that early church community and what was going on there. But if you got your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, 22 through 36... Uh, and before we dive in, listen, e- even though uh, I-, I believe uh, this, this song was, was popularized by Casting Crowns, I want to say in the late, the late 90s, I-, I-, I remember the first time uh, I heard the song, Your Love is Extravagant. You know what song I- I'm talking about? Uh, I-, I remember the first time I heard that song, it was, it was around 2003 or, or 2004, because I, I, as a youth pastor, I, I was in a youth ministry where our, our students would sing it because they had been led the year before by a guy by the name of Aaron Ivey, uh, who, would, who would drive in and lead our students in worship. He had a little band called Spur 58. Uh, he is now the, the lead music guy for, uh, at least I, I think he still is, for uh, the Austin Stone. Uh, but they would sing this song because Aaron had taught him this song. And even then, you could tell that like the most manly, the, the toughest, with, with ample facial hair, uh, high school student from Angleton High School felt like, you could just tell they felt a little funny, like standing next to their like high school football teammate with an equal amount of facial hair, singing, right? Your love is extravagant. Your friendship is, is intimate, you know? Maybe gave their buddy a little wink. And I, I find I'm moving. <laughs> I find I'm moving to the rhythms of your grace. Your fragrance is intoxicating in our secret place. Hey, Chad. <laughs> I don't know. Um, your love is extravagant. And, and, I, and I remember even thinking that, okay, like, I get it. Um, uh, I know that Jesus loves us and, and he calls us into relationship with him. But, but I'm like, man, I think we're like mixing some metaphors over here. Maybe we're, we're, we're over romanticizing worship a, a little bit. I know, I know, I just ruined your favorite worship song, okay? Full, like, full disclosure, I, I, I've sung that song a hundred times, I actually love the chorus, okay? Um, but church, as, as Peter 
as he pours out his heart in this in this sermon in Acts two, make no mistake, he 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 paints a clear picture of of the love of God for lost man. Amen. God 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 has proven his love once and for all at the cross. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But, but as, we, as we kind of dig into the meat of Acts chapter 2 and this sermon of Peter at Pentecost, listen, like one of the, one of the things we're going to realize is Jesus is not a contestant on the bachelorette, like eagerly hoping to be chosen by like the good-looking, desirous single lady, okay? Like that's not what's happening. Like he, he is a sovereign Savior. He is a sovereign Lord, amen? I don't know if y'all are with me this morning. He is sovereign Savior and Lord, amen? So like I, I watch these, you know, a lot of the popular TV preachers and kind of the message that they're spinning. And listen, like Jesus is not begging for your yes, like he's somehow incomplete without you. Okay? No, the picture of, of Scripture is that he sovereignly moves and he sovereignly woos and he sovereignly calls. And, and listen, when we respond, when we respond, we must know that like long before we had any inclination to seek him, he was already at work softening, like hardened and callous hearts to see the, the goodness of his grace and his glory. And until the church gets gets serious about the sovereignty of God, we're going to just sort of continue to flounder in our own strength and and under the delusion that we're in control. But this morning we're going to learn that we're going to see that Jesus is is sovereign savior and Lord. Amen church. And so I want you to look at verses 22 through 24. Acts 2, and it says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan in foreknowledge of God. You crucified and you killed by the hands of of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And we'll, we'll dive into 25 through 32 in a, in a momentarily, but the, the first, if you're following along in your bulletin, the first point I, I want to make is this. Um, as we look at a sovereign Savior, the cross was always God's plan. Amen? I, I, I want you to look at your neighbor because y'all, y'all are y'all, y'all are a little. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we got like this the spring break. You know, some spring break partying that was going on last night. You you were just so excited about losing an hour of sleep this morning. Um, I want you to look at your neighbor and say, "Sovereign Savior." Sovereign Savior. Listen, Peter says he this this was attested to you by God. A test in the Greek is, is, is to cause something to be known, 
as genuine. So, so, so when God moved, think about this, when God moved in the times of the Exodus, He, he validated His messenger Moses through signs and wonders. These signs and wonders also validated the new revelation that Moses brought. Uh, that God was indeed, that, that he was indeed God's man and that he spoke the words of God. And, and so in the same way, listen, the miracles of Jesus were not these cheap party tricks. Like they were not these one-time events. The, they were not these standalone acts. They were for the express purpose of validating the message and the messenger. And so the, 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 the miracles of Jesus were proof to a watching world that he was the Messiah, that he was who he says, said that he was, that, that he was not only the Savior of Israel, but he was a Savior of the whole world. Amen? So, so G, Peter says, man, God, he was attested to you by God. And, but then verse 23, it gets interesting. Check out verse 23. It says this, he was delivered up. And so at this point, if you're following along sort of in the gospel narratives, you, you might say that Judas delivered up Jesus. Like you, you might say or, or, or that a, a religious leader, the religious leaders delivered up Jesus. You might say Pilate delivered up Jesus. And, and I would just say, amen, like you're absolutely right, because in no way is their human responsibility, is it diminished or, or is it downplayed in the gospel accounts? But, but Peter makes it clear, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Amen? And, and, and Daryl Bach says this, <laughs> Jesus' death was no surprise to God. Jesus, it's, Jesus' death was no surprise to God. And in fact, in using that language of foreknowledge, in the Greek it's this word prognosis, uh, David Peterson says it means more, listen, it's more than God's ability to anticipate the future. Peterson says it's another way of talking about his determination of events in advance according to his own plan. Church fam, I'll say it again and we'll keep saying it. The, the cross was always God's plan. It was always God's plan. So, so when, when Paul reminds the Ephesian Christians... In Ephesians 1, 4, that they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Among other things, he's revealing that the cross was not an afterthought of God. It wasn't an afterthought of God. In, in, in Genesis 3.15, it goes all the way back. Genesis 3.15, you, you, you had this, if you want to jot that down, you have this like, uh, it's called the proto-evangelum. And so, all the way back to the garden and the fall of man, there was this, this promise of a future redeemer. There was this promise of one who would, he would come and he would undo the curse of sin and he would deliver sort of the final, not sort of, he would deliver the final death blow to sin and to Satan. He would undo the curse. And, and, and so Isaiah 53, as is, is you fast forward, Isaiah prophesied 
about this suffering servant. And all of Israel knew this prophecy of a suffering servant. They, they just didn't connect the dots. They, they hadn't connected all the, the, the dots. Tony Morita says the Jewish people, they couldn't fathom a crucified Messiah. Like Morita says, Messiahs win. Like that's what they do. Like if you're a Messiah, you come into town and you, you win. Jesus was crucified in shame and agony. Marita says, how could he possibly be the Messiah? But Peter shows his audience that, that Jesus didn't die is, is like some pathetic victim. He laid down his life in fulfillment of the sovereign plan of God. He had to die as a substitute in the place of sinful man because we've been talking about this. Sinful man wasn't qualified for the kingdom of God. Sinful man didn't have a shot at being in God's kingdom. This, this is why, despite the fact that like as you look at the disciples, every time you turn around, they're talking about like, who is the greatest among us, right? <laughs> like they're, they're looking at like Jesus, God in human flesh is next to them. Who's the greatest of us? It's, Jesus is. Shut up. You know, but they're they're so consumed with power and, and position. And they were also consumed with sort of this idea of a physical kingdom right now. And Jesus, what was Jesus doing? Jesus was always looking ahead, talking about the cross, talking about the resurrection. He understood that the path to the kingdom went <clears throat> through a bloody cross. And he understood that without the atonement, without his atoning sacrifice, there wasn't a single man, woman, or, or child, past, present, or future who met God's righteous kingdom requirement. Just didn't exist. And so the sovereign king came to die for his subjects. He came to die for his subjects. But look at verse 24. Death couldn't hold Christ. Amen. See, if, if sin, think about this. I, I think this is where like, we need to do a little like, theological sleuthing. Like, we need to understand why, why death couldn't hold the Messiah. See, if sin is the penalty of death reserved for fallen men, how in the world could, it, could death keep its grip on the perfectly righteous one? F.F. Bruce says the sentence passed on Jesus by an earthly court and executed by the Roman soldiers has been reversed by a higher court. It's been reversed by a higher court. And, and, and I love this. One more quote by R.C. Sproul says this. Scriptures tell us that it is through sin that death came into the world. The really astonishing statistic, Sproul said, says is not that one should rise from the dead, but that one should remain sinless throughout his whole life. That is much more astonishing, right? People that get tripped up on the resurrection and the, the miracle of the resurrection, like that's pretty amazing. Uh, Sproul saying, you know what's more amazing? That there would be a sinless man. If that is true, Sproul says, then it would be morally unjust for God to allow a sinless man to suffer the, the curse that he assigned to sin. So death could not hold Christ. Death could not hold the Messiah. And then Peter goes on and, and in verses 25 through 32, I'm not going to reread it again, but if you want to jot this down, he quotes uh, David from Psalm 16, 
verses 8 through 11. So, so he, he goes back and he, and he sort of he sort of takes another look at this psalm of David, this messianic psalm of David, and he's revealing that David was prophesying of the Messiah. For, you know, David's tomb, listen, and, and, and Peter says as much, David's tomb was readily accessible in that day. Josephus talks about David's tomb. And as significant as David, King David was, his time had come and gone, and his, his body had been buried, and had long, long before that had seen corruption. But Peter attests that Jesus has been raised, fulfilling the prophecy. And once again, we, we see this emphasis, as we'll see throughout Acts, of, uh, on the, the apostles' sort of eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Christ. But I, I want to drop some application. Again, the cross was always God's plan. Amen? And, and I, think, I think many of us who've been in the church for even a second and a half, we, we would nod our heads in agreement to that statement. Like, oh yeah, like the cross, the cross was, was God's plan. It was always God's plan. But, but let me... Let me make it personal because I, I want to make sure all of us, including me, are like catching the significance of this. The cross was always God's plan for you. It was always God's plan for your sin problem and your brokenness. I've been in, in, in full-time ministry now 18 years. And one of my, one of my, it, it, our, our really kind of second pit stop, um, back in our hometown, uh, I was a family pastor. And, and one of the roles that I, I loved and, and, and enjoyed was counseling with, I would counsel with, with parents and I would counsel with young children in regard to baptism. And, and talk them through the significance of baptism. And, and, and let, me, let me be clear. I absolutely believe in and, and affirm the childlike faith of which Scripture speaks. Uh, I, there is no doubt in my mind that Jesus saved me when I was eight years old. Uh, my bride when she was ten. But one of the things that I would often see from parents in our little bitty Baptist church setting, would uh, they, they would be quick, quick, to rush their five and six-year-old children. At one point, there was a lady who was helping in our youth ministry, and she was confident that her son at three years old had trusted Jesus, right? And so they would rush their children to baptism as soon as they could verbalize Christ died for sinners, right? And to that, like, I would say, like, amen, like, amen and amen, absolutely, Jesus dies for sinners. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. He did, but so often what was lacking in kids so young was any, like, any sense of personal conviction. Any conviction, personal conviction over sin. Personal conviction that Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth died for, for me. He, he died for because of my sin, my sin put him on that cross. See, John Stott says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. And so, again, 
the application, church family, is this. Christian, God, God was sovereign over the cross. So he's sovereign over sin. Amen? And let me make it personal. He's sovereign over your sin. Past, present, and future. Romans 8.1, there's there, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Like, we've, like that, that's, that's good news, right? <laughs> now Romans 6 would remind us that it's not a license to trample grace and continue in sin, but it should be a, a comfort and, and a challenge to Christians who are still battling with guilt and shame over their sin. Christian, check this out. God made a provision for your sin and your brokenness and your death before you were born. Let that sink in. Like, just just rest in that. Rest in the fact that you don't have to continue to be enslaved to sin. The cross and the resurrection completely changed the narrative. And praise God, man, that was always His plan. That was always His plan. Romans 8, 38 and 39 reminds us that we can praise God that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not death, not even all the powers of hell. Nothing. We have a sovereign Savior. Second thing this morning is this. I want you to look at verses 33 through 36 and I'll read them. I'll start back at 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, verse 36, therefore know for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Second thing this morning I want to say is, as we look at a sovereign Lord, uh, God's authority was always our problem. <laughs> God's authority was always our problem. See, verse 33. Yeah, we're going to do it again. Look at your neighbor say, sovereign Lord. Okay, we're going to, one more time. Look at your neighbor and say, Sovereign Lord. God's authority was always our problem. See, verse 33 says, Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. So, so, so just, just some, I mean, I think we know this, but the Father is not a literal man with a right hand, okay? Scripture says, like, the Lord is spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, right? God's not, the Father's not hanging out, and He's like, here's my son at my literal physical hand. This, this is figurative. It's not literal. Let me be clear. It also doesn't, you know, there, there's some terrible theology around this. It, this is not a new position to Jesus. Jesus didn't become Lord. He was Lord. 
Like, this was not a new position for Jesus, but a return to a position previously held. When, when Jesus says in John 17, 5, in His high priestly prayer, He says, Now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the, the world existed. That's what He prayed. So this was not a new thing for Him, right? This whole Lord thing. So Jesus at at the right hand of God is not only indicative of his sovereign honor and glory, but also of the fact that he intercedes for the saints. Amen. He he is he is mediator between God and man interceding for us. He is sovereign Lord over salvation. And I know Ken Wigley's not here, but just like my man, our man Shylin says, he's Lord over salvation. And again, in verses 34 and 35, if you want to jot this down, Peter again quotes another psalm, but this time it's, it's Psalm 110. You'll see, you'll see Psalm 110, verse 1, quoted over and over and over again in the New Testament. But he points to another messianic prophecy, and David Peterson says, says this, fundamentally, this psalm speaks about the enthronement of a son of David. God's invitation suggests, Peterson says, that a king who rules in Jerusalem is the Lord's earthly vicegerent. And God rules his people through his chosen representative, his anointed, and promises to put down all his enemies. Now, what Peter's breaking down, clearly the Lord in view is not David. He's already established like David. David has, has died. He's been buried. His body has seen corruption. But so, so how could a son of David be David's Lord, right? Only if that son, only if that heir was God himself in human flesh. Jesus, what, what Peter's saying is Jesus is the promised son of David. He, he is seated at the right hand of God, indicating that, hey, this work of salvation, it's done. It's finished. He has dealt with sin decisively and finally at the cross. Amen, church? Like, it is a done deal. And the church now, listen... The church now exists in this gap between verse 34 and 35 as we await the day when Christ's enemies will be made His footstool. When every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, every tongue, because that's not happening right now, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. Verse 36, Peter says, Know for certain that God made Him both Lord and Christ. See, church, Peter's reminding us that Jesus is sovereign Lord. Like, we've created this schism, right? Between His salvation and His Lordship. But like, no, no such schism exists in Scripture. To, to trust Jesus as sovereign Savior is to submit to Him as sovereign Lord. There, there's, there's a mystery of grace. grace. Grace is a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. But listen, we, we say this often at Restoration. Grace is not just a commodity that we consume. 
It is the character of God that we are called to display. Church, we are, we are saved to be set apart unto the Lord. We are saved to be set apart. But at every turn, we're trying to make it about us. Are y'all with me? If you're with me, say amen. At every turn, man, in American culture, American church culture, like we love, we want to make it all about us and not about the Lordship of Christ. And it goes, even this goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve just, you know, minding their own business. Satan rolls up on the scene. Did God really say? Did God really say immediately planting that seed of doubt around the word of God, doubt around the authority of God. And, and, and it makes sense, you know, in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, he kind of he points to the idea of pride being sort of the, the great underlying sin of man. And it makes sense because it, we're, we're following in the footsteps of the original fallen created being Satan. But try as we may, we cannot escape the authority of God. Uh, three, three passages, and, and this is three of hundreds of Old Testament scriptures and new that say the same thing. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. And then David in Psalm 115, 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Man, we don't like that one. We cannot escape the authority of God. See, it, it, it's, it's like this. I, I think part, part of the problem is, is we, we struggle with this idea of, of a perfectly good sovereign. One who has complete and total authority over our lives and yet who will operate in my, for my good and for my best interest. See, the problem is we, we look around and we're like looking for that, right? Among ourselves and, and like, out, like in the world. And all we see are these like broken, fallible leaders. And, and right now, like our TVs are filled with debates and political talking points and posturing and smearing candidates as we, as we yay, <laughs> As we gear up for another election, get excited. I don't care who your like favorite go-to candidate or, or politician or leader is. On their best day, they still lead from a place of brokenness. And at the end of the day, we still vote for he, who we want our, our leader to be. <laughs> and this is our problem. Like we've, we've always had uh, the, these authority issues. And even now, like we as Americans, we live in a democracy and we act like we need to vote on it before God decides, right? Like, God, I'm sorry, we didn't even take a vote and like you did that. I don't understand. 
Um, or somehow like God needs our, our approval. He, listen, He is the God of election, but He ain't our elected official, okay? <laughs> uh, we have an authority problem, and no matter how hard we try, we can't kill the authority of God over us. So, so what that means is this. Church fam, listen, you're, like, your greatest problem, I, I, I want to be very clear, your greatest problem is not out there. Okay? It's not Trump. <laughs> it's not the other political party. It's not the coronavirus. It's not drivers on Highway 6. You're like, I don't know about that. Uh, it's not your boss. It's not your, your college roommate. It's not even the brokenness of the world around you. Your greatest problem is within you. Your greatest problem is a heart that at every turn wants to cast off the supreme reign of your Creator God. Our problem is that we want all the control and we've, we've even created this Christian culture where like God's our, our, our co-pilot, right? Um, but we get the final say. And contrast that with the early church mantra. In a time where all of Rome was saying Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord in the early church, as they greeted one another, they said Jesus is Lord. And make no mistake, that word Lord was reserved for Yahweh God alone. They said Jesus is Lord. But church, there's an enemy in our midst. <laughs> His, his little attempted coup has failed. Can we, can we say amen to that? His attempted coup has failed. Satan knows that his time is limited. He, know, he knows how the story ends, but he is still hell-bent on deceiving the world and, and keeping it plunged in sin and in darkness. And his, his greatest lies, I believe, number one, are that you can find life apart from God, number one. That there's life apart from God. And two, that you can wrestle control away from God. Big lies. Because we can't. We, we fail to understand that our greatest good and freedom is found under His sovereignty, not by trying to cast it off. Let me say that again. Our greatest good and freedom, freedom is found under the sovereignty of God, not by trying to cast it off, seeking to make it all about us, seeking to make it all about you, or trying to, to make God submit to sort of your desires and designs only leads to more emptiness. Only leads to emptiness. And, and, and I'll, I'll, close, I'll close with this. You, you probably don't know the name, maybe you do, Edward Perenay. He was a, a minister and writer. Perenay was a contemporary of John and Charles Wesley in the 1700s. And I read this last week at, at one point. I love this story. When Perenay was, he was put on the spot to preach. And he boldly declared that he was about the, the, to preach the greatest sermon ever preached. And he got up and he opened to Matthew 5 and he preached uh, the Sermon on the Mount word for word. <laughs> and then he just sat down. It's like, yes, it's my guy. Uh, why is he important? 
Pyrenees is perhaps most famous for pinning the words to what many uh, in Christians in years past dubbed the Christian, the, the, the national anthem of Christianity. All hail the power of Jesus' name. And the first verse simply says this. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him. Crown him Lord of all. Church, we need to get serious about a sovereign Savior and Lord and quit trying to fashion a Jesus of our own making. Hebrews 12, 2 says, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what that means. He's not asking your permission to be Savior and Lord. He is Savior, Savior and Lord. Amen? He's not asking our permission. The, the question then becomes, is He your Savior? And is He your Lord? Y'all pray with me this morning.